always experiencing life in story, in narrative. I was thinking this week about how, how to enter into this topic of doctrine, and I think that might be the best way. We're, we're always putting things in narrative, whatever experience, even whatever happened to you last week or this last month. We don't have a videotape memory. We have narrative, and we put it in place. And the same is true with what we believe in our doctrine. I grew up in a little country church in central Illinois. Great little church, had all of the strengths and the weaknesses and the flaws of a little country church. Uh, Loved well, loved Jesus. I learned how to trust Jesus and how to walk with him from a very, very young age. But my church was growing up uh, was from a Mennonite, Anabaptist, Mennonite, United Brethren in Christ branch of the Reformation, if you're familiar with uh, sort of some of the branches that come out of the Reformation. And in that Mennonite, United Brethren in Christ, we had a, a belief or a doctrine that we had. Uh, it was called a, a second work of God's grace in your life, that it was you, you, a believer would at some point after trusting Christ and becoming a Christian would be filled with the Holy Spirit and receive this second empowerment of God's Spirit in your life, which would equip you for greater service. And there were scriptures in the New Testament that they would go to to talk about that. And that was part of the doctrine that, that my early church held. And then I got in my teen years and I had some friends that went to a, an Assemblies of God church in our community. Again, good, solid, Bible-believing church. And as I started listening there, I started hearing things like, oh, and this Holy Spirit who fills you, there's actually something you're going to experience that will be an indicator or evidence that you actually have the Holy Spirit. And that's you're going to speak in tongues and you're going to have uh, this experience of being able to speak in a language you don't know. And that's going to be the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I went to Bible College in Fort Wayne, Indiana in the 80s, and there went to, uh, earned a degree in pastoral ministry and Bible. And in that, in that school, they had a view of salvation that we would call, if you're familiar with theological uh, jargon, kind of a Wesleyan-Arminian view of salvation, of God's work, which tends to look at our part in this salvation story and then I pastored for seven years, came to salvation, came to, to, to St. Louis, where I started going to Covenant Seminary. And in my Master of Divinity program at Covenant Seminary, which is from a very uh, Calvinist, re, uh, Reformed Calvinist perspective, looks at that same experience from God's perspective on that and kind of highlights God's perspective in that salvation epoch. Each of these theological beliefs or stops along the way were places on my narrative where I encountered, interacted with, embraced, or didn't embrace doctrinal teaching. Many of you may have the same kind of journey. You have, along your theological journey, you have certain stops where, yep, this is where I was encountering this. This is where I was encountering this. By the way, all of these places that I stopped were really, really committed to God's Word, really committed to unpacking God's Word and to living it out. So there wasn't any, weren't any of these stops that weren't solidly evangelical and Bible-believing. So what do we do with all of that? What are these doctrines that we're supposed to talk about and that we're supposed to be dealing with? Um, Basically, in the biggest picture, doctrine is that term that's given to the body of teaching that comes from an engagement with Scripture. What does the local body of Christ, what does first free believe 
when we look at God's word and we come away with principles, practices, positions on important matters of faith. I'm sure that as we talk about, last week Adam talked about dogma, and we're going to start getting into, as we add these buckets, just a couple of of words of caution. We're going to start getting into that area where it's We have a temptation to want to put a hard line around this bucket and put it over here, and then this bucket is going to sit over there. But these buckets of dogma and doctrine we're going to talk about today, and then we're going to talk about convictions next week, and then preferences are actually all contained together. So the dogma that we talked about last week is doctrine. And today we're going to talk about that next circle, that next bucket, which is doctrine. And doctrine Some of our doctrine does fall into the dogma bucket, but not all of it falls into the dogma bucket. A person can be in error about most of what the Bible teaches and still become a Christian if they happen to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and believe that he died for their sins and put their faith in him. I think think that's, that's it. That's what our dogma is. That's what that is. Now, if they do that, I think, the Holy Spirit might help them to grow in the truth. And if the Holy Spirit listens to me, they'll even land up my convictions later. We'll talk about that next week because remember, I'm always right, so I want that. And, and so all this starts blurring together. It's like, oh, here's the dogma. And then we have a doctrine about that. And then my position on that. And we're getting into that area where we're going to start not necessarily separating them and sorting them through, but understanding how they relate to one another. How does, how does our doctrine we'll talk about today support the dogma of the gospel? And how do our preferences and our convictions help us to understand the doctrine that we, that we have? So as we continue on here, we're going to talk about why it's important to understand doctrine. One of the real risks we take in this series at this point is we might accidentally communicate to you or you might come away with a message that doctrine is not really that important because dogma is what it means, right? You need to trust Jesus to get into heaven so everything else is unimportant. That is nowhere close to where we stand as a church, to where we stand as pastors here, to what the Bible teaches. Doctrine is incredibly important. In fact, it's, it's so important we need to distinguish it from that dogma so that we don't elevate other non-essential doctrines up to that level of dogma. This has been going on since the beginning of the church. In fact, around 350, a man named Cyril, who was a leader in the church of, in Jerusalem, was describing how the church was kind of synthesizing what the Bible teaches about important doctrinal statements. He defined the role of this approach this synthesis of faith as set out to present the one teaching of faith in its totality which, at, which what is of greatest importance is gathered together from all of scripture and he goes on to talk about it as a mustard seed containing a number of branches as tiny it's a summary of faith that brings together in a few words the entire knowledge of what is true in religion That's what a statement of faith is. That's what a doctrinal statement is. That's what a creed is. It's looking across the scope of Scripture and saying, what does God's Word teach about this? And where is our position on this? It was a very early stage in the history of the church that we started having some doctrines 
that were elevated a little bit higher than other doctrines. And oftentimes it was when this belief that we had started bumping into stuff, either bumping into conflict or controversies within the church or outside of the church in the culture, things had to be defined. For example, the early church singled out two doctrines very early. One, the doctrine of the two natures of Christ, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And the second doctrine that was singled out was the doctrine of the Trinity. Those two doctrines, the early church said, are really important because they distinguish us in Christendom from Judaism and from paganism. And at that stage in the church, it was important that those be defined and staked out. And they became real, real concrete, rock-hard doctrines that we hold as Orthodox, Evangelical, we might say, Christians. Over the years, some of the doctrine that we have, in fact, doctrine is often forged in real life. It should be, anyway. It shouldn't just be in some, you know, uh, academic environment. It should be when we're putting into practice the truth of what God calls for us to do. Doctrine, when it's applied well, helps us to figure out how God is working in our lives, how God is working in the world, and gives us some definition of who we are as a church. Doctrine should help me know how am I living, how are we supposed to be living, and how are we as the church interacting and impacting and taking that dogma that we talked about last week, the message of the gospel, out into the world. Now, I do want to say that there there are some who object to this kind of approach of pulling out these doctrines and looking at them separately or developing a systematic theology approach to Scripture because it takes the Everything the Bible has to say about God pulls it out and says this is what, we, what the Bible says about God. All the verses and teaching the Bible says about the end times, we pull it out and we look at that. The objection, which is worth noting, but not necessarily worth stopping talking about doctrine, is that our doctrine should never be separated from the grand narrative of, of God's redemption throughout history. From creation, fall, the restoration, God's theology should never be separated from the way that he is working, and that's something that is really, really important for us to understand even today. I'm going to look at a few passages of Scripture as we go through this morning. The first stop is 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is instructing this church leader about how to handle wrong belief in the community of faith, how to deal with sinful practices that were threatening to influence the church. In chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, he points out how good doctrine acts as a guide to do this. If you explain these things to the brothers and sisters, Timothy, you will be a worthy servant of Jesus Christ, one who is nourished by the faith, by the message of faith, and the good teaching that is doctrine you have followed. Don't waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourselves to be godly. There's something about the body of belief that we have, the doctrine, the teaching of God's word, that as we hold to it, trains us in this godliness. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's encouraging Timothy to hold, as Paul's going through suffering and imprisonment, um, to really, really look at what this teaching is, this doctrine is, and how it ties into the work of God in the church. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting with verse 12. That is why I, Paul, am suffering here in prison, 
But I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust, and I'm sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Verse 13, hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching that you learned from me. Hold on to that doctrine, that body of teaching, a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Jesus Christ. And I love that because doctrine isn't just forged in an academic study environment. It's forged in faith and love as we are living into this life that we were given by faith in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. Really, really rock-solid rock teaching for us about how to deal with and embrace doctrine. Now, Paul helps us remember often in his letters that doctrine is linked to God's plan of redemption. There are a few places you see it really in a stark way where Paul is diving into some doctrinal issue in one of his letters to one of the churches, and then he sort of drifts off into this discourse. It seems to be a little disconnected. One of them is in Romans chapter 11, in Romans chapter 11, Paul is unpacking God's salvation, the doctrine of salvation, we might say, about how God is, is dealing with Gentiles, how he's dealing with Jews, what that means, and really highlighting the mercy of God in implementing this plan of salvation. In Romans chapter 11, verse 30, we read, once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but what but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are rebels, and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. And so Paul's just kind of checking off this real, real solid biblical theology of salvation and how it impacts Jews and Gentiles and how we need to think about it. And it's then almost like something just grabs him in that moment. And here's what grabs him. What an incredible God we have. What a marvelous, incredible God. Because as he's going through this excursus in, in theology, he just launches into, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, how impossible for us to understand his decisions and his ways. Who can know the thoughts of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice? Who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever and ever. When was the last time that was your response to doctrine? When was the last time you looked at what the Bible teaches about any doctrinal issue and you get gripped like Paul. It's like, what an amazing God. What an amazing God who put this together and planned it and taught us and then gave it to us to hold and keep. Unfortunately, doctrine for most of us in our church environments has become more about boundaries and guarding the truth from error, which is important and is a valid use of doctrine, don't get me wrong. But when it's divorced from worship, when it's divorced from praising God, when it's divorced from the God who gave us doctrine, then we can get off track. Now, later in this series, we're going to have two full messages about application. We're going to have two messages that are going to be, how are we going to apply these four buckets inside the church, and how are we going to apply these buckets in our interaction with people outside the church. But for right now, I want to give you a few stops on how we're going to apply doctrine, in particularly in this message. First, just as I alluded to, Doctrine should lead us to wonder and worship of the God who redeems lost people like us. 
This is the North Star that guides us. Without this, we get, a doctrine just drifts around and we begin arguing about things that we don't even really need to be arguing about. Take the return of the Lord, for example. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is going to come again. And there's a great hope that we have in his second coming. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord with the air. in the air. We will always be with the Lord. So you guys write some books and take positions and argue about that. No, what does he say? Therefore, encourage each other about that. Encourage each other. There's this doctrinal truth that we hold, this principle that's so important, the second coming of Jesus Christ. We ought to be falling all over each other to encourage one another about the hope we have in Jesus as we are following him. Next, doctrine should help us identify and understand the central tenets of our faith. Doctrine should help us identify, understand, and I would even say spread the central tenets of our faith. We live in a world today, church, that desperately needs to know the truth. Desperately needs to know the truth about the gospel, but also desperately needs to know the truth about who's in charge of this world, about the plan that God has, about how we walk in obedience. Look at the news this past week. Look at the news today. Open the newspaper. Open your web browser to any news source, and you'll see people whose lives desperately need something that they can hope in and believe in that's true and sure. And here we are in the church and we have a a wonderful doctrinal statement based on God's word, these principles that we hold true. Question is, are we letting them know? Are we living it out for them? And then that leads me to the third point. Doctrine should help us to live the Christian life individually and corporately. What difference, for example, does the doctrine of the Trinity make for you this next Wednesday? What if when we did new members class, instead of asking the question, do you affirm all of the 10 statements of doctrine that we have at the Evangelical Free Church, we said, do you affirm these? And by the way, can you give me a couple examples of how they make a difference in your life? What difference does it make that Jesus is coming back? What difference does it make that the Holy Scriptures have been given to us by God and they're without error in the original manuscripts? What difference does it make? We rarely go there. Just one example, my wife and I are at that place, our kids are out of college and beginning this adult stuff, and we're at that place, we've started having some conversations like, all right, what, what now? What's for us? What are the next five years, 10 years, 20 years going to look like for us? You know what? It is incredibly comforting to know that our little conversation about goals for the rest of our lives are under the umbrella of God's actually got this and Jesus is coming back again. So everything that we do has to fit under that umbrella. So comforting. Our doctrine needs to translate into our daily lives. It's important to remember that the church holds doctrine. Doctrine does not hold the church, and that's an important distinction. The church holds doctrine. Doctrine does not hold the church. When I was looking for a seminary to attend many years ago, I visited Lincoln Christian Seminary in Lincoln, Illinois. I sat in on a couple of classes, and one of the classes I sat in, this professor was teaching D-men students, so these are guys that were training to be pastors in the Christian church, which is the, the seminary, the school that this seminary served. And this professor said something that was really challenging and so helpful to me. 
He said, most of you guys are gonna graduate here with your Master of Divinity degree. You're gonna go out and you're gonna serve a church and you may have a career as a pastor for 20 or 30 or 40 years. The sad thing is, for many of you, your theology will never change from today to the day that you retire and you stop being a pastor. Wow, what did he mean by that? I don't think he was meaning you're gonna deny the Trinity or something like that. What I think he meant was, if you leave here and your doctrine never changes... What does that say about how you've lived it out, how you've engaged in this God and in this truth, this scripture that ought to be changing us, ought to be refining us, ought to be helping us to understand and to live more into the truth of what God wants us to know. So we hold doctrine. Doctrine does not hold us. A couple weeks ago, one of our ministry leaders was talking to me about some plans that were made in this ministry, and she handed me a a document that was from one of their leadership meetings and said, here's the plan that we came up with. And she apologized because it had coffee stains and was all wrinkled. And, and I remember saying, oh my, I wish all of our ministry plans were coffee stained and wrinkled because what does that mean? That means we're using them. They're being beat up and spilled on. And I think that's, that's one way I look at doctrine I don't want our doctrine to be framed and hung on a wall in a really, really nice oak frame. I want it to be stuffed in our pocket that we live, that makes us, that challenges us, that forges us, that convicts us, that we use when we're talking to a friend who's in trouble or a friend whose life is falling apart. I want doctrine to be something that helps us as a church to know where we stand so when we encounter some other kind of teaching, we can love that person from a stand anchored in the truth of what God says about the church and what he says about who we are as his followers. I'm going to do something a little unusual today. Because we're talking about doctrine, we have here at at First Free, since we're part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, a 10-point doctrinal statement. I'm going to invite two friends to join me up here. Larissa Day and Stephen Cruzy are going to join me up on the stage right now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask them to read for you the 10-point statement of faith, it just takes, you know, three and a half minutes or four minutes to read, the 10 points of the statement of faith of the Evangelical Free Church of America. And the reason I wanted to do this is because we rarely actually say it all together and understand, if you're part of our church, this is who we say we are. And I want you to listen. The, the headings are going to be on the screen. I just want you to listen to them as they explain what we believe from the Evangelical Statement of Faith. Larissa, you want to start us? We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed them from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. We believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. 
In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only grounds for salvation. We believe that the Holy Spirit, in all that he does, glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He convicts the world of its guilt, he regenerates sinners, and in him they are baptized into union with Christ and adopted as heirs in the family of God. He also indwells, illuminates, guides, equips, and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches, whose membership should be composed only of believers. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially, and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. With God's word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil. In obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and deed. We believe in the personal, bodily, and premillennial return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ, at a time known only to God, demands constant expectancy, and as our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. We believe that God commands everyone, everywhere, to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment, and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth, to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Larissa. Those are not the words of Scripture. They are the words of men and women who've studied Scripture pulled that together, said this is, and, and sometimes we ought to say too, historically through the history of the church, some of these doctrines have been held together. So when the leaders in the Evangelical Free Church of America in the 50s came together and merged two free churches, even in the last decade we refined this statement of faith. It's not scripture. We can change it as we understand and want to reflect what the truth of God is and how we want to live it out. 
different denominations or groups have different ones. If we were Presbyterians, we might have brought our lunch because we would be reading the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, again, was a group of men who came together and said, what does God's word have to say about these important things and how can we synthesize them into a statement that would help us to walk this journey and to be the people that God has called us to be? So you can find dogma in our statement of faith. But not every element of every statement is dogma. It's doctrine. There's dogma in there. But, for example, can a person be saved without believing in the inerrancy of Scripture? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's doctrine. It's important. We believe it. But is it required? Do we tell someone, you know what, and before you can ask Jesus and before he will actually come into your heart and her before he will you know really be your lord and savior you have to you have to acknowledge and understand this no again it's truth it's important we teach it does someone have to believe in the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment for those who reject god to be a christian no but it's important doctrine because the bible teaches it And we hold it against those who are saying something different. Doctrine is really, really important. That's why we hold to it and why we want to have, in fact, you might say sound doctrine supports the message of dogma. And some doctrinal points support it maybe stronger than others, but they support and uphold that dogma and give us as a church a path to run down so that we can live out our lives as God intended it. Even in some of the conversations I had after this service and that we've had our pastoral team, teaching team with others going through this, I love what I'm hearing because we're bumping into the right questions and challenges in this series. And the right questions and challenges, I thought, like, oh, okay, thought that was dogma and doctrine. Where's that conviction coming in? And Don't stop. Don't stop bumping into that because we're, we're, we're trying to understand how we're going to be unified as a church on this mission. And sometimes we can get a little puzzled even in our own thinking because like I said, I come in my own narrative and I have my narrative and I'm putting everything in my narrative and sometimes my narrative gets to be challenged and should be challenged. So we, for example, in our statement of faith, don't have a doctrinal stance on the age of the universe. Nothing that Stephen or Larissa read said anything about the age of the universe. That's not addressed in our doctrinal statement of our denomination, nor do we as a local church have a stated doctrinal position on that. Another issue that we don't have a stated doctrinal position on, in fact, if you read carefully and if you're attuned to these theological nuances, our statement says that the Holy Spirit regenerates sinners. Now, if someone tends to come from a, a Wesleyan-Arminian vantage point, a good, strong Wesleyan-Arminian statement of faith might say, um, the Holy Spirit regenerates believing sinners because don't we, have to have, don't we have to believe before we're saved? If you come from a Reformed Calvinist perspective, a real strong statement might say the Holy Spirit Uh, regenerates unbelieving sinners because doesn't the work of the Holy Spirit happen and that's what gives someone that ability to be able to believe. See, two different perspectives on that same issue. What we say in the evangelical free church is, yep, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit regenerates sinners. 
And if you're looking at it from this perspective, if you're looking at it from this perspective, that's what we're going to be talking about when we get into convictions, when we get into preferences. Yes, there's a place here for you. There's a place here for you. As far back as 1950, there's been a, in the evangelical free church, there's been a phrase called significance of silence that I want to talk about for a minute. This term has been used in the evangelical free church to explain why we don't spell out all the subpoints like other churches. There are other really good, strong, Bible-believing churches who will have a long list of subpoints that they want you to also ascribe to. We don't do that. This term has been used in the evangelical free church to describe our silence on doctrinal state, or the silence in our doctrinal statement on those doctrines which through the centuries have had have divided Christians, and this is important, of equal dedication, biblical knowledge, spiritual maturity, and love for Christ. When we encounter a division with someone who is equally dedicated to God and to his word, equally committed to biblical knowledge, spiritual maturity, and love for Christ, and we differ on something, we're not going to divide. We're not going to divide. There are, there are issues that are silent in our statement of faith. Does not mean they're not important. Doesn't mean we're not going to talk about them. Doesn't even mean we won't debate them. We're just not going to divide over them. That's the key. What this does is it helps us to have the conversations that we need to have. It also helps us to, to acknowledge that not every point of doctrine is on the same level of importance. There are some that are for various reasons. We don't have time to get into all of that now. Maybe in historicity, maybe exegetically, maybe as they're tied into that dogma uh, that we talked about last week. There's a book, by the way, called Evangelical Convictions that this comes from. I encourage you to get that. We use it a lot in our new members class here. Evangelical Free Church of America, Greg Strand is a key person in putting this together for us from the Evangelical Free Church Home Office. Just a word about that. Some of you may have read it. You may have it. We encourage you to. They use the term in that title, Evangelical Convictions, and it's a book about the doctrinal statement of the Evangelical Free Church. A little disclaimer, they're using that term a little differently than we are. We're going to talk about convictions next week. If we were putting a title on that book consistent with our series theme, we might call it Evangelical Doctrines, although some of them are going to be convictions. I had to talk with someone today after the first service who was wrestling with, wow, where does my doctrine stop and where does it become a conviction about a doctrine? Keep asking that question. That's really important. That's the discussion that we need to have. Where is my conviction about a doctrine still connected to but distinct from what I believe about that doctrine. So I think, by the way, this gives the evangelical free church, this gives first free such an advantage over a lot of other churches. Not like we're competing with them. We're on the same team if they're a Bible-believing church, but but when we go out and we talk to people who are lost or we find hurting people, we don't have a lot of subpoints we need to help them understand. We have a pretty basic statement of faith and these things that we hold to and this gospel that we hold to. And so we can partner with Twin Oaks Presbyterian Church who believes a little bit differently about baptism than we do, but we hold the, doc, the dogma the same and much of our doctrine is the same. And the free church, I think, is uniquely poised to make an impact into this culture, even in our community. So in order to have these conversations, though, we need to approach 
doctrine with humility. Anytime we come to this matter of doctrine, we need to have the humility fitting a man or a woman who's seeking to articulate the teaching of God on a certain topic. And always ought to have a little bit of humility of saying, boy, I'm looking at Scripture. I'm pulling in the community of faith, the church, others who I respect. And we're together looking at this body of knowledge and we're saying, God, what would you have us stand for that's true, that we hold to, anchors for us in our church? When Paul wrote to Titus regarding the character of a man who would be a leader in the church, this is what he said. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home. He must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Not exact terms, but the concept of this teaching, this doctrine. Have a strong commitment to that. And then he will be able to encourage others with the wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. And then he gives an example. For there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. Hang with me here for a minute. I think it's helpful because using the principles of this sermon series, it seems like a leader's, or let's just say a mature Christian's strong belief in the trustworthy message and the doctrine that God gives to us in Scripture will allow us to teach and correct others and to have sort of an anchor to look into these other buckets. Especially, verse 10, for those who insist that circumcision is required for salvation. What did we talk about last week? Dogma. What's required for salvation? Next week, we're going to talk about convictions and we're going to talk about preferences. Sometimes I like to add those to the dogma, don't I? I may not do it explicitly, but I like to think, you know, you also need to do this. What we might say, if we put this verse in our terms, having the right approach to doctrine when it comes to the tendency to put my convictions like circumcision, which circumcision isn't a game changer. If someone is circumcised, they can still be a Christian. Just don't require it as part of salvation. So circumcision, a conviction shouldn't be put in the dogma bucket of salvation. Doctrine helps us do that, church. That's what doctrine's for. So we are holding this doctrine, this body of truth that God has given to us so that we can stay united as we walk through this discussion in our life and ministry together. So doctrine is vitally important, just to wrap this up. As we live the Christian life, I think of it as anchors for us important anchors that help us to praise God, to grow as disciples, to guard the sound teaching of the church, and to engage in the mission that God's given us to reach this community in the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A few takeaways for you, some suggestions to apply this. Review our statement of faith. Open it up. Go to the website. We have a version of it on our website at efree.org that has a lot of scripture verses, and you could look those scripture verses up and see where the the people who put this together looked in God's word to draw the principles and the, and the doctrinal position that we have. Get involved in a discipleship community. Study the Bible. The best way to learn doctrine is not to just memorize doctrinal statements, is to be a man or a woman of the word of God.
Read it. Get in, a, get in a small group. Get in an adult class. Get in a community somewhere where you're studying it. Open it up every day and ask God to help you to understand and meet him there. That's where we, that's where we encounter him. Talk about what we believe. One of our adult communities, Heritage Builders, is right now diving into these four buckets over the next few months. I know a lot of our small groups are also, and other classes are taking this opportunity to just join along with this sermon series to study and talk about these kinds of things. And it's exciting to see. We encourage that. And then talk to a friend from another church, maybe. Close friend, a fellow believer who goes to another church and Talk to them about what we're studying and say, hey, let's talk about what our doctrine is. What's your doctrine? What do we have in common? What's the dogma that we're going to hold to to the end? And where do our preferences come into play there? Let's keep this discussion alive. It's really, really important. Our worship team is going to come together now and lead us in our closing song. And this takes me back. I started at my, the church of my youth. You know, another thing the church of my youth did every Sunday is we sang this song that as a kid I got kind of bored of called the doxology. You know, every week we just sang, praise God from whom all blessings flow. But it shouldn't be anything boring about the doxology, should it? There should be nothing boring about a God who's given us his promises and given us his faithfulness. And remember what Paul said, wow, whenever we talk about doctrine, We ought to just walk away in praise and celebration and worship of the God who gives us this doctrine. Let's stand together and sing that song.